In an interview about the series of books she co-authored, Girls Who Choose God, MacArthur Krishna said, The whole process of writing this book has reinforced what my life has taught me in the last few years, that there are numerous ways to choose God. How you do it is not that important in terms of location, occupation, marital status, etc. There is not a cookie-cutter shape to how we should each choose God in our own lives. It can be a vibrant kaleidoscope of solid options, but making that choice, choosing God, is vital. For me, I am clear that the wild ride I am on is God's path, and it is both much more abundant and insane than I ever imagined. MacArthur Krishna comes from a pack of storytellers. With a master's degree in communications from BYU, she co-owned Free Range, an award-winning marketing business focused on telling social justice stories. After she moved to the magical land of India, she got married and started writing books and raising kids. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Jones, and I am so grateful to have MacArthur Krishna here with me today over the phone, I should say. How are you doing, MacArthur? I'm doing great. Well, we are so thrilled to have you on the show today, and I am so excited for people to get to know you, but even more so, I work with several people that are really big fans of yours, and they've told me bits and pieces (laughs) of your story over time. And so I'd love for you to just share a little bit about your life. You, You live right now in Oregon, but you spent the last eight years in India, which is something many of us cannot not even wrap our minds around, but I hope there are people listening in India. So tell us a little bit about what took you there and about you and your family. Sure. The easiest and most true answer about what took me to India was God, that I said my prayers and Okay, that sounds really simple. Over the course of an entire year, because I doubted God (laughs) and because I doubted what was sitting in front of me, I was praying and fasting literally once a month, talked to my bishop and friends and parents, and at the end of the day, turned to God and said, what am I supposed to do with this? And I got back the most clear answer to prayer that I was to marry my husband and move to India. And so it's one of those things where it's both, it was the most cognitive dissonance I'd ever had in my life. And at the same time, once you have an absolutely clear answer, which is not always the way prayer works, but in this case it was, thank goodness, then it was very easy. You just, you just do it, right? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about why there was that cognitive dissonance. Oh, a long list. So um, my husband is a very spiritual person, but is not of our faith. And that was not something obviously I'd ever expected in my life. In fact, he said to me, I know getting married in the temple is really important to you. So how about if you just go inside and you get married in the temple and I'll just be outside waiting for you? (laughs) And I said, oh, sweetheart, (laughs) if I'm going in, I'm not marrying you. And he's like, oh, that." Bad plan, bad plan. Take, you know, take that back. And so that was one of the main reasons. And when I finally actually told my mother, like, mom, this is, <laughs> this is the person I'm supposed to marry. She said, oh, yes, dear. I've known for a year. I've just been waiting for you to figure it out, which oh is God. like the best example of mothering, right? That she was so in tune with God that she had the answer first. 
but she knew her daughter well enough to know that I had to have the answer on my own. And she trusted God enough that when the answer came back rather unorthodox, that she was willing to have the faith to, to let me follow that. And so I think it's actually a, a quintessential example of my mother's parenting, where she was always in tune with God and we always trusted that. But she also knew that we had to have our own relationship. And she also knew that we had to have agency to grow and develop that as people and develop that relationship with deity on our own. So yeah, it was a, it was a tender mercy that, that when life takes you for a very, very different turn, that you have the comfort of parents and, and, and their trust in your answers and their own answers. So yeah, I think this is something that we should we should pause and talk about because I think it's so important. There are many people within the church that are in this same circumstance of being a member of a part member family and um, trying to figure out the balance of, you know, how do you talk about things of faith and how much in your home and how little. And I, I'm curious about your thoughts about how you've been able to make that yeah. work. So one thing I should be very clear is that everybody's path is different. And so I can talk about my path, but that in no way implies it should be somebody else's path. Yeah. And so the Mormon Women Project also just did a series of mixed faith interviews, messages, essays. And so they gathered a wide range of people who are experiencing this in very different ways. And so I'd recommend whoever's listening, if this is something you're interested in, like go find that. Go look at yeah. the Mormon Women Project and, and read the range of experiences because everybody everybody's doing that different. And so I think I in my case... the Mormon Women Project, by the way. Yeah, they're amazing. So in my case, I think it was... I will say I will feel really blessed because I had a very clear, like I said, the most clear answer to prayer I've ever had, I've ever experienced. It was, it, it's, it's as the Joseph Smith line, right? Like God knew that I knew. And so when you have that kind of assurance, which is not the way that answers to prayer, in my world at least, usually happen, <laughs> then it means that everything else, everything, and I, and I mean everything, like all caps, is manageable. And so everything in my instance involved like, let me think, India Mafia, Cobras, <laughs> not always running water and electricity, <laughs> uh, you know, crazy hot temperatures, you know, all of the, all of the deprivations, my, my, there's so much chaos and, and craziness. I mean, there's all of like the India that I love, you know, there's all the India craziness and then there's like situation that went even beyond, right? Like you never in your life expect that you're going to be sitting like in an Indian police station having a conversation that feels a little bit like a Bollywood movie, like with the fan thumping, right? And the dog running through and the man across the desk, like, you know, massaging his mustache. And you're just like, how in the world did I get here? Like, all oh, right, I, I followed God, right? <laughs> and so... For me, that mixed faith piece of it means that God, Heavenly Father, and Heavenly Mother know my husband. They know he is good. They know that the path we're going to be on is different than the path I would have expected. But that does not mean it is a quote-unquote bad path, right? Right. Right. And so because my situation meant that I had this very clear answer to prayer, that meant that I could be like, 
Lord, you knew this was going to be tricky, right? <laughs> and it's tricky. I mean, that's the bottom line is tricky. Um, but I, I believe in the benevolence and omniscience of heavenly parents. And so that means they understood this was going to be tricky and, and that was acceptable to them, right? It was acceptable to them that my marriage and my faith and this trickiness was all going to be part of that package. And so that means that even when I find it just like bang my head against the wall challenging that I assume that they're like, yes, 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 dear. (laughs) Yeah. It'll be okay. So... So, so interesting. So how have you, because you have, from what I understand, you have one child together and then did he have daughters before? Yeah. So I have three daughters. The oldest is 17 and 11 and four. And the oldest two are um, biologically from my husband's first marriage. Okay. And so that's been interesting because they're obviously um, raised in a different, maybe not obviously, they're raised in a different faith tradition by mostly by their grandmother and kind of the culture around them. My husband is not, my husband would call him, well, he likes to be provocateur. So he calls himself a pagan, but really he's more of a seeker. Like he's interested in the universe and spirituality and he sees rich and deep meaning, but he seeks it out from lots of different places. My oldest two children would probably call themselves Hindu, but my oldest daughter is observing Ramadan this this week. <laughs> so okay, it's it's a different set, right? It's a different set of structures. And when I was living in rural India for eight years, the closest church was more than four hundred miles away, and those are those are Indian miles, not like interstate miles. <laughs> and so that meant it was like a 16-hour car drive or an overnight train ride or a plane ride to go to church. And so that meant a lot of times we were doing home church, and which was hysterical. So when all of this business happened with Come Follow Me and then COVID, I had friends email me being like, you're the professional. <laughs> You've been doing this for eight years. And so we did lots and lots of home church. You know, Every Sunday we'd gather and we'd have a spiritual thought and message. And, and that has been very... Well, I was going to say very satisfying. It's been a mix, right? So it's not what I was used to. And it's certainly not what my oldest children were used to. And so it was a riot. My 17-year-old came to me and was like, I don't want to do this. This is just not comfortable for me. And it's not what I'm used to. And I just started snickering, being like, oh, see? And I thought I was going to avoid this conversation since like, I'm not a mom forcing my teenager to go to church. And so I thought I was just going to skirt that whole like power struggle challenge between a parent and a teenager about church attendance, right? And here I'm having the exact same conversation with my Muslim Hindu something sit around the front lawn and have a like a, a family church, which is you know much less onerous than you know a, a church building kind of structure. So you, you don't you don't escape the the teenage discussions no matter what, what your <laughs> situation is, right? Yeah, no, and I think that's so that's such a good point to make that no matter what you do, you're gonna have there's gonna be that tension with teenagers. I think that that's there that's such a valuable insight. Um MacArthur, I am curious about whether or not this was it this experience that led you to write Girls Who Choose God or what was it that that ultimately led to these books? Yes. So 
Bethany Brady Spalding is dear friend and co-author. And now we've worked together for 10 years on a whole bunch of different books. We've really know each other's strengths and weaknesses, and we work really, really well together as a team. And I wish she could be here today, but um, I'm going to brag about her since she's not. <laughs> and Bethany is the kind of person that when she looks around and she sees the landscape of something, she's really good at being able to spot the hole or spot the problem or spot the lack. And in this kind of instance, it must, you know, it must be a genetic trait because her three-year-old had picked up a cartoon book of the Bible and flipped through it and turned to her mom and said, Mom, where are the stories about the girls? I want to read about girls. And Bethany picks up the book and flips through and lo and behold, even though it was a storybook about the Bible where there are plenty of women, there was not a single woman story of a woman in that book. Not one. And a three-year-old had been able to spot that. Yeah. And so being Bethany, most people had been like, well, that's such a bummer. But Bethany started looking around, you know, this is about 10 years ago, and she couldn't find a single book, a single book. She said, how can this not exist in all of the faith traditions? How can this not exist that people want to teach their girls and their boys about faithful, righteous women? And it didn't exist. So she called me up and said, hey, like, I know you're writing stories. I think we should team up and do this project. And so we were so lucky that, that it got the attention of Desert Book and that Desert Book also saw the need and saw the hole around this. And in fact, we had pitched doing one book with kind of you know, a, a compilation of women. And Desert Book is the one who said we should, we should spice it out, splice it out, and make it um, Bible and Book of Mormon and church history. Um, because as we all know, there are rich and abundant and powerful stories. Like in the Bible story, some of the most important women, we're talking, you know, Eve making the choice in the garden, that she was the first one to do that, to the woman at the well, who was the first person that Christ declared his divinity to, to his mother, to Mary, Magdalene, who he appears to as the first person after the tomb. Like here are the women in these very crucial moments of Christ's life and ministry being the verse, first person that he chose to interact with in that way. These are amazing women. These are amazing stories. And both girls and boys need to know these things. So Bethany and I sat down and, you know, said, well, let's, let's, again, this is Bethany, right? Like there's, a, there's, there's not just a hole, but we're going to do something about it. <laughs> And so we started writing these series of books of trying to emphasize that these women had a choice to make. And we were very, very careful. So we went through the scriptures and we picked out women that, and the stories where we were excited about. But one of, the, one of the catches in our format is you have to be able to show a moment of choice. And so what we wanted to highlight here is that women, all of us, the women in the stories are faced with this moment where they have to decide whether or not they're going to choose God's plan for them. And then you turn the page and you hear what the story is. But we didn't want to just extrapolate or make things up. We wanted to really be able to show that, that there, was this, there was this time. And so we were really careful when we went through and we read the scriptures and we talked about what the women had done. And, and of course, this is so important because each of us every day has that same question placed in front of us. And sometimes it may be a small moment or sometimes it may be a huge moment, like whether or not you're going to move to India. But at the end of the day, like each of us has this moment, um, many, many, many moments where we have the opportunity to say, we're going to choose God. And so for us, it was amazing because in going through and reading these, like when we were doing the Bible version, there are stories I had never even heard of. So there was four young girls who came to Moses 
this because their, their righteous father had died and under Jewish law, only sons would inherit. So they're about to be homeless in the promised land. And so they came to Moses and said, wait a second, this isn't fair. And Moses took it to God. And I love this quote. God comes back to Moses and said, the daughters of Zelophehad speak right. <laughs> How's that for like a divine validation, right? Yeah. And the girls get the law of the land changed, right? It's an incredible model of not accepting social injustice and using your power and righteousness and faith to go and work through the system to make sure that things change, right? That's because things are the way they are does not mean it is the way they should be. And that's an amazing concept to teach young children. So that was incredible. And then, of course, we wanted to tackle the Book of Mormon. And at first we thought, yeah, but there aren't enough women in the Book of Mormon. I mean, that's my assumption as most of us. And then all of a sudden I was reading through and I was reading this article about all the women in the Book of Mormon who just don't have names. Hmm. And I like this huge libel turned on in my head and I thought, wait a second, (laughs) of course there are women there. It doesn't matter if, I mean, it does matter if they have names or not, but it doesn't matter for the sake of a story, right? That we can write a book. If we can show there's a moment of choice, like in the instance of the people going to the waters of Mormon to be baptized, like those people chose to be baptized. That's a choice. We can show that. And so we were able to go through the Book of Mormon and find stories of women who are choosing God. And then we had the exact opposite problem when we hit church history, (laughs) because there are a gazillion women and a gazillion amounts of information and good golly. And I mean, it was just like this, you know, sucking from the fire hose. And we were so blessed because we contacted a gang of church historians and we said, there's no way like we can, we can get through all of this. We are not professionals. And so they were incredibly gracious and kind and had lunches and phone calls and conference calls and like just tossed us a whole bunch of names to sift through. And then when we selected them, gave us lots of resources for information. And then when we wrote the stories, they looked over to make sure that we weren't talking crazy talk, right? <laughs> and so we were so grateful to have them for this. And the reason for me that all of these things matter so much is that we have a pattern, right? When you have you know, one dot, it's a moment in time. When you have two dots, it's a trend. When you have three dots, it's, it's a pattern. When you have dozens of dots, <laughs> that shows you that there is an intention here. And the intention of our heavenly parents to have their daughters and their sons both be active, contributing, growing spiritual members of this life experience, right? It is not that one gender is supposed to learn and grow and be spiritual and the other gender is supposed to play a supportive role. That's not it, actually. Like we take turns supporting one another. Each of our own individual growth and spirituality and relationship with God is of utmost importance, and I think having this, this pattern of all these women through the Bible and Book of Mormon church history is so important to show young girls that they have a model. You know, they have a model of what it means like to be a woman who served God. And at the same time, I hope opens it up for them. There's so much different models in these books that it's very, very clear that there's not a cookie cutter that any person should have to be. There's no way you can say, oh, look at this person's life. If they live here, dress like this, have this kind of house, have these kind of habits, they must be a person of God, right? And in fact, when you look at these stories, they, they, they lived and functioned and, and even sometimes contradictorily served God. So there's one story we have in the church history where it talks about that her choice to serve God 
was that she was meek and mild and she was gentle in how she spoke to people. You know, that she was this warm and loving soul. And those were her talents that she spread through the, the, the contacts and the relationships she had. She was called the great mother. And I think that's incredible. But on the flip side, there are other women who were known for being fiery orators, you know, that they could stand in front of a crowd and they could move them. And that that was their talent to really bring people together and to, to create this force of energy. And what I love about these is that both of these women have, in some ways, kind of diametrically opposed talents that are all useful. You know, there's, all, there's always a use for your talent in, in Zion. And I think that that's a really important concept for people to internalize as far as how they are raising their kids and how, you know, kids and youth are looking around and trying to figure out what to do with their talents. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is such an important thing to realize because I think sometimes we look at, I know myself, I am fairly opinionated and sometimes <laughs> lack a filter, you know, but I, I have noted that when I was younger, I think I sometimes thought that made me less of a woman. And I, mm. I have learned over time that that is not the case. It just means that we all have different strengths. And so I think that's such an important thing to teach children and to, to illustrate, you know, this woman had these talents and this woman had these talents and they were both so incredible Lucy women. Lucy Max Smith stood on a barrel. <laughs> And called out to not just... Okay, so back up. Lucy Max Smith was elected to be the head of a group of saints moving. And there's about 80 men, women, and children. Some of the presiding bishopric were in that group. And the group elected Lucy Max Smith to be the head. And the head meant she was in charge of transportation and finances and arranging logistics and lodging and food. She was the coordinator, right? But there was a moment in time where their ship got stuck because they are frozen in and they're getting cold and hungry and they don't know what they're going to do. And Lucy Max Smith like stands on a barrel and berates them and any pacifier who happens to be walking by. (laughs) (laughs) And she gives this speech of where is your faith? Have you forgotten your faith? And and people walking by are like, why are you yelling? We be Mormon, right? (laughs) And to me, when you're talking about yourself and you're talking about like these talents that you bring to the world, I would call them talents. Thank Um, you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. You're welcome. Maybe just because I relate. (laughs) But but like every single talent can be used for good. I mean, I think that's the power of divinity, right? That it's not just like a silver lining. It's like the most divine, sparkly, shiny lining. Not just a lining. It is the thing. It's just like its core essence, right? Every core essence is shiny and sparkly divine. And so if you can be Porter Rockwell, a gunslinger, who puts the fear of, you know, Jehovah into the hearts of people, and he can have his talents used for Joseph Smith, then being an outspoken woman also absolutely has its place and talent. And the story with Lucy Smack Smith that she says, if we put our faith together and we remember, you know, God can answer our prayers this very moment, and there's a thunderous crack, and the ice split, and they were the only ship they got through. Wow. So... If you were in that situation, you want a Morgan standing on that barrel. (laughs) 
listen up, people. (laughs) I've got an opinion about this, right? And I think that like understanding that about Lucy Mac Smith and understanding that about yourself, that there's, there's a place for all of us. You know, I think it was Elder Holland that was talking about like, you know, a place, a place in the tent, right? That you stretch your stakes out and there's a place. And I just think it's such a beautiful idea that, that we are all like talents are God given, even personality traits, I think are God given. And so maybe some of those we have to learn, how do I make sure my outspokenness doesn't injure people? How does I make sure my outspokenness doesn't shadow other people? I mean, there's ways to learn how to use your tool with finesse. But that doesn't mean the tool is is anything other than a gift from God, right? Yeah. Well, I think just as, you know, we talk about our strengths can become our weaknesses, our weaknesses can become our strengths. And what is the the difference maker there? It's whether we're coming unto God and talking to Him about those strengths and those weaknesses and trying to work to make sure that they are being used in the best way possible. And so I think that is such a powerful thought. MacArthur, I want to talk a little bit more about choice and agency. So in this book, the thing that I really love is you tell the story of the woman, whether it be in the Book of Mormon or the Bible or church history, and then there is a question and the question deals with choice and Mm -hmm. how these women chose God in their particular situation. Why do you think agency is so key in our Heavenly Father's plan? And why is it so important to teach our children about agency starting at a young age? Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a couple of really important ideas in there. And honestly, I get most of this from my own parents. I think my mother and father were really good at at striking this balance. So I think a couple things wrapped in there, like our heavenly parents sent us to this earth to succeed, right? That's a really important idea. They didn't send us here to fail. It's actually not a test. It's a school to learn and grow. And so if you approach as a parent, an idea that your child is here to learn and grow, the way you do that is through exercising agency, through choosing. And our heavenly parents thought that was important enough (laughs) that they're willing to wage a battle for it in heaven. They're willing to have a third of their children choose a different way. I mean, like that's how vital they thought it was, right? So if they think it is this vital to let agency be the, the setup of life, then that means we as parents also have to follow that divine plan, even at the risk, which I think every parent has heart palpitations of some kind or another over over spiritual or physical or emotional danger to their child. So I'm not talking about being an irresponsible parent, but I'm talking about as parents, understanding the importance of agency was big enough that our heavenly parents are willing to put that much on the line. And from my standpoint, I think my parents, especially my mom, would talk to us a lot about this. And she would say, you know, that she could not teach us to manage every situation in life, right? There's no way. As a parent, you so want to. You want to prepare yourself, you know, your child to do well at preschool and then be successful in kindergarten and make friends and, you know, do well in school. I mean, like all of these things, you just keep thinking in your mind, like, I'm just preparing my kid for, I'm preparing my kid for. And you want to make sure you put structures around it and no screen time and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, like we're all human. There's no way my mom could have understood that I was going to end up 
married and moving to India, right? There's no way probably that most parents would have predicted a world pandemic, right? And so I think that my mom's model is she'd say, I cannot teach you everything you need to know. The only source for all knowledge is God. And so if you can turn to your heavenly parents and you can say, dear heavenly father, I need your help on this. And she modeled this all the time from very, very small to very big things. But she also taught us, like when we come to her and say, mom, where do we go to college? Or do we do this job? Or do we marry this person? You know, her, we, we always knew the very first question would be, have you said your prayers? Right. And so I think having as a parent, letting agency grow, right? That you, you, you start small. A toddler should not be allowed to have agency to wander next to the pond, right? <laughs> By themselves. But like, as, as they get older and older, you know, you as a parent have to be willing to step back and let them experience what this earth life school was really meant to do, which was to create learning opportunities. And you do the best you can, but at the end of the day, you, you actually cannot choose it for them and you can't live it for them, even though I think it's the closest a human parent can come to understanding the atonement is to understand that you would take your child's pain if you could. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's not me, obviously. There's a large gap between divinity and us. But in a very, very small model, I think parents would say, absolutely. If I didn't have to have my child experience these painful things, then I would, I would choose to take that away from them. But in the same way, that's not choosing our heavenly parents' plan. You know, they put us on this earth. In fact, we voted. <laughs> you know, we chose to come to this life, and our children have spirits that also have the opportunity to vote, and they chose to come to have this experience. And so having this experience that says, mm, pain is or discomfort, or hard knocks are not maybe the way we would always learn, but it is learning, and learning and growth is the point, right? It is the point of birth life, to come become more like our best, most divine selves, like our older brother and our heavenly parents. And so for me, it's one of those really hard things <laughs> to kind of balance, like, oh, you know, like, I think you're always doing this kind of uncomfortable tango, right? Where you're trying to be like, okay, let's go over here and and provide structure. Like, yes, you have to eat healthy food. And then you back up over here and you say, but okay, you can choose whether or not you want to stay in your jammies all day. I mean, like, I mean, every parent has to decide what their what their what things are gonna be very sharp and crisp on and what things are going to be fluid on. But all of us have to keep in mind that our heavenly parents designed this earth life to be a school and to be a learning environment and that we want to keep our children as safe as we can. But, but if safety takes away learning, then we're not furthering the plan. And you just have to decide kind of in what ratio um, between safety and learning on kind of every single topic. Yeah. This brings up some interesting, you bring up so many interesting points, but it brings up some thoughts that I've had over the past couple of weeks, just in that I think a parent's responsibility is to one, teach their kids to be good people and two, to encourage them in, in 
learning how to make these choices. The reason I've been thinking about it is I've been thinking about how in my own life, I feel like my testimony right now, as it is at this moment, is the result of things that I've experienced in the last five years. And so while I think my parents taught me so many good things, I would say the most important thing they taught me was how to build a relationship with God and to receive answers for myself. Mm -hmm. And so I think that these, these things that you're talking about are so important because our kids are going to grow up to be adults and they're going to have experiences, things like you said, your, your parents had no way of knowing what you're going to, you were going to experience. And certainly you've experienced things they never experienced. My mom was never single for an entire decade when she felt like she should be married, you know? (laughs) And so there are just different things that we experienced. I was 37 when I got married. You can relate. You got me, MacArthur. Thank you for that. Yes, I was 37. And my mom at 37, I think had six children, (laughs) right? Yeah. And so it was, we, we had very different life paths, right? And so... And that's what I was talking about kind of in the beginning where I was saying, you can't say this woman on this path is living a righteous life. You know, you can't say that, oh, 37 and single, they must not be righteous, right? Or six kids and 37, she must be a righteous woman. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, can't, you can't hold up these things as definitions, right? Because quite literally, if we believe our heavenly parents are the master educators, right? Like they are the experts in knowing how to develop our souls along this eternal path. Then they know what our path needs to look like and the different people have different souls and need different paths, right? Like, and if that isn't just obvious, okay, let's just back up here for a second. To me, that's obvious. But even if you said like, you know, but we're, you know, we're all of Latter-day Saint faith or we're all you know, X, Y, Z, all the things that make us similar, then just take another half a step back and look at the broader world. And if you don't think that a woman in India (laughs) is on a different life path than me or you or anyone who's listening to this, it is a different life path. And if we think that this earth is, is well under the purview of our heavenly parents, then that means that her life path is just as much developmentally created for her growth as mine is for me, even though they look very, very different. And I'm talking about just basics, right? Like, well, my house in India had a backup generator. So when we lost electricity, I could still turn the generator on. Now, it might be expensive. We might try not to do that very often in XYZ, but I had the option. I had indoor plumbing, right? <laughs> like That was part of my existence. And that was not the existence of the 10,000 neighbors who lived in the village next door to me, right? Yeah. And like, and these are kind of silly, frivolous examples, but like every single person's life is very different. And, and that's true whether or not you live next door to your neighbor in daybreak, or if you live in Portland, Oregon, and, or my neighbors in the village in India, like it is, everyone's on their own developmental journey. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I have two more questions before we wrap up. But before we get to that, first of all, I just want to congratulate you. You and Bethany just won a big award. 
Yes, we did. So Bethany and I and Kathy Peterson, she's the gracious, incredible, talented... Illustrator. So, so talented. Yep. From the Girls Who Choose God series. Yes. We just got noticed that the Association of Mormon Letters has awarded the Girls Who Choose God uh, Stories of Extraordinary Women from Church History, the Picture Book Award for the year, which is so fabulous in so many ways. And the reason I think this is so fabulous is because the association tries to pick out things that they, works that they feel are particularly representative or needed or important, you know. And the reason that I think the Girls Who Choose God church history book is so relevant right now is kind of threefold. One is that obviously this year we're highlighting and celebrating the restoration and the truths of what that, what those truths mean in our lives and how that changes our life and the world. And the role that these church history women had in that restoration is significant and real. And so for us to have a chance to highlight their contributions is so important always, but especially this year as we're talking about the early days of the church. It's also significant because 2020 is the 100-year anniversary of when women were granted the right to vote as a group in America, which is a very big thing. We know that equality is divine, and men and women both participating is divine. And so for us to have this chance to mark and say, you know, women and men both fought for this right and some of the suffragists that we mentioned in the book are, you know, have the opportunity to talk about how they used to go to Relief Society meetings, you know, <laughs> and organize Relief Society groups into voting blocks, right? I mean, it's just such a powerful model of what tax standing t- to the side. <laughs> it's a powerful model about what a, what a group of women who sees an injustice in the world can get together and have the power of God to make change in the world. And so that's really exciting. And last is I think so much about President Nelson's injunction. And President Nelson has this amazing quote. I should have had it word for word here. I apologize. But he has this amazing quote where he calls upon women to step forward, to step in, all in. It's exactly what you need for this series, Morgan. He calls for (laughs) all in, right? To step into their families and their communities and their world to use their talents. So when we talk about a woman who is a quote-unquote stay-at-home mother, which is a silly term because no woman I know stays at home all the time. She's running all over the place, crazy busy. But if you're talking about a woman who is a full-time mom or a part-time mom or not a mom, like whatever it is, whatever situation you find yourself in, President Nelson says, now is the time to step in and use your talents. And I'm not trying to say to everybody, again, there's a great quote from conference about whether you're a thousand-watt bulb or a 20-watt bulb. Point is, you're not the bolt, right? You're you that that Christ is our light, and we aim people to Him. But from my standpoint, like all of those thoughts swirling together, is President Nelson and this last general conference talking about like using your talents in whatever sphere you're in to count yourself in for goodness. And so, for me to have the Association of Mormon Letters say yes, this book. You know, these stories of the extraordinary women is also appropriate and applicable today to remind us that there's all these different talents and all these different ways that can be a force for good, right? And, and I think that's in, I'm not trying to make anyone have a guilt trip. That is the last thing I would ever do. I would just say that whatever sphere you are in, you have the opportunity to be a force for good. Yeah. 
Thank you so much. I read your, I'm so glad you brought up the Mormon Women Project because I love something that you said there. You said, I've learned that when you're faced with something that doesn't seem fair, it's an opportunity to choose to strengthen your relationship with God. Obviously, this is talking about your decision, your choice that you made to marry your husband, and that was not an easy choice for you. So what have you learned about that, that that when something doesn't seem fair, it's an opportunity to choose to strengthen your relationship with God? And how have you seen your relationship strengthened as a result of that time in your life? Yeah, it's so interesting. And and first of all, we should pause and say, my poor husband, like, <laughs> like he's a marvelous human. We, we shouldn't make it all out. They're like, oh, it was so difficult to marry him. Right? Like, poor guy. Um, I'm, I'm sure he's fantastic. I actually wish we had him on here. Someone. He could defend himself, you know? <laughs> you should interview him. He'd be good. <laughs> and he's fantastic because I wouldn't have married someone who wasn't, right? Yeah. Um, I was not going for the... Um, I was in a meeting once and a woman said, if we're, if we're this age and, and single, we must be going for the dregs. And I, and I would have stood up and walked out had my roommate not put a restraining arm on me, right? Because um, I do not think that's true at all. I have um, the exact husband, opposite attitude. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I choose fantastic. And whoever chooses me gets fantastic. There's room to work on all of us. But let's just be clear about that we are sons and daughters of God, right? Yeah. yeah. So I would say, interesting that you just mentioned this because I'm actually, I was just proofreading another article uh, for the Mormon Women Project about faith. And um, I would like to say that it was just this springboard to great and glorious faith. Wouldn't that be a nice answer <laughs> if I could actually give that answer? And instead, what I experienced is I went through this year of time, probably two years of time, where I was as righteous <laughs> as I had ever been. Because I had to make so sure that the answer I was getting was crisp and clear and not coming from me. Like I had to be, I had to be a hundred percent sure or I was going to lose my mind. And so I went through that period of time where I, in fact, I'll, I'll quote you this. Well, the, the experience I had was I was grouchy <laughs> and I said to God, really? Like I'm, I'm 37 years old and I've tried to live a righteous life and I'm, and I'm trying to say my prayers and do all these things. And you could have, you could have smoothed this path and my prayers aren't really known for their humility, but they are known for their authenticity. <laughs> so I had that conversation, right? And it was amazing. It was, again, one of those moments, this is fascinating. Some of the most, the most clear answers to prayers and the most clear interaction I've had with God have been around my relationship with my husband, which is so interesting, right? That like, whether or not I should go to BYU or whether or not I should graduate school, like all of those were, but like, the husband got like crystal, most crystal communication I've had. So when I was having this kind of grouchy conversation, I paused and in a, you know, in a snit and it came very clearly to me, I could have done it that way. And you would have had a relationship with him, your husband. This way you have a relationship with him and with me. <laughs> me all caps yeah and I was so humbled 
right? Like, oh, all of that cognitive dissonance, like curling up in the fetal position, not knowing what I should do, because could this possibly be right? Really? Right? This right? All of the, the suffering that I went through as a result of this gave me a relationship with my heavenly father because I prayed to him as desperately as I ever had. And I would like to say that that was forevermore firmly rooted in my soul. But the truth is, as I went through the next years of life, and there were things that just got harder, (laughs) which I didn't know was possible. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting how that works, huh? You're like, I think I deserve the easy train at this point. Right. Like, excuse me, I followed your path. It should just flow out. Where's the land of milk and honey, right? And instead, I had a a more wrenchingness, right? That's a word, wrenchingness. And then all of a sudden, I realized one day that the mistake I was making is that I was not turning to God the way I had previously. Wasn't that interesting? I'd learned this. I had learned this big and bold and glorious and warming truth, and somehow I wasn't living it. Why do we as humans do that? (laughs) And it was so fascinating to me to realize that I'd actually totally backslid, right? And so when you ask me like, what relationship have you developed in this and where have you gotten to? I'd be like, I hit a fabulous pinnacle and then I just slid down the other side of the mountain, right? And and to realize that this earth life is that exact ride probably over and over and over again, that if we're not constantly, continuously turning to God, that we're going we're gonna to slide down that valley. And I think that, and, and, or we do, and, and, and we're in the valley and we turn to God then, right? <laughs> like there's no time where it's not a good idea to turn to God. Whether or not you feel dirty, whether or not you feel wicked, whether or not you feel a failure, whether or not you feel irresponsible, whether or not you feel brain exploding cognitive dissonance, like it does not matter. Whether or not you feel, you know, beautiful and pure and holy, all of those times, wherever you are, is the time to remember that you have heavenly parents who love you and to get, it doesn't matter, get, I was going to say get down on your knees, but it doesn't matter, like curl up in a fetal position, <laughs> whatever you need to do to turn to God and say, be with me, right? And I guess like that's the, that's the success story in this is not the pinnacle, but the success story is like the, the continued realization for the need to recommit and try again. This yeah. life is about trying again and trying again and trying again, right? Yeah. And so if, if someone's out there listening, they shouldn't hold me up as the, the model, except that like, well, I've been accused of being stubborn. <laughs> That is one of my strengths slash weaknesses, and depending on the situation. And so if I've learned, it has learned that even if I've given up or I've given up on my hair of my parents' plan, that they don't give up. Yeah. And that's a really important thing. That's beautiful. Thank you, MacArthur. I feel like you've already taught us so many things about this, but as is customary, the last question that I have for you is what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So that's a very interesting question because it could be tackled in a number of different ways. And when I'd heard that question before, I'd assumed it was kind of all the answers I just you know, talked about. But then something just hit my brain. And maybe this is inspiration. I don't know. 
And what it occurred to me is when we're talking about being all in, what, what first occurs to me is like, you know, commitment or intention or saying, count me in, you know, when I talk about President Nelson, step into the world, right? Like all of those big, glorious kind of banner waving things. And then the thing that just hit my brain is all in actually means all of us is welcome. And I mean, all of us as in entire humanity is welcome, but I also mean on the micro level, all of me is welcome. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm going to be all in, that means I bring my whole self. And that means foibles and imperfections and stubbornness and feistiness and opinions and energy and laziness and whatever else. And that being all in means my heavenly parents and my brother Jesus always love me. And if you know that, then it's easy. It's not easy. But if you know that, then it's possible to be all in because all of you is welcome. And I think that is a really important idea. Thank you so much. I'm going to call it inspiration too. So there's that. MacArthur, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. You are such a pleasure to talk to. And thank you for, for being so open and sharing so many wonderful thoughts with us. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure to be here. I sincerely hope that to me, words matter. And I hear words that can spark my soul. And so I hope something here today is sparked for someone else. Thank you. We are so grateful to MacArthur Krishna for joining us on today's episode. Be sure to check out the Girls Who Choose God series at Deseret Bookstores or on DeseretBook.com. A big thanks to Derek Campbell of Mix at Six Studios. And thank you all for listening. We'll be with you again next week.